This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. If you go to our mortgage team's website, you'll find hundreds of testimonials of real Christian radio listeners we've helped. Laura here is a recent friend who is kind enough to share a few words with her local station. I was actually referred to United Faith Mortgage through my mother-in-law. We decided it was time for us to start looking for a house, and I reached out to Kelly. And we found several houses we liked, but, you know, with the seller's market, things kept falling through. But anytime we needed her, she was there for us. She got everything we needed as soon as we asked for it, and she made it work. She made sure that if that was the house that our family wanted, we were going to get that house. They're a wonderful company, and we're just really blessed that we found them in the process, that they helped us get through it, and we are in the home of our dreams, and and our family is so happy. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp., 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. Welcome to the Becoming Well podcast, the podcast that explores the intersection of faith and mental health. On this episode, we dive into a rather difficult topic around mass shooting, trauma, mental health, and the overall messages that can kind of motivate these horrific acts. We hope you hang out with us over the next 45 minutes or so as we really take a deep dive into this topic. For this episode of Becoming Well, we want to talk about a topic that is is a really difficult and challenging one to tackle and um, is unfortunately impacting a lot of people in our country, and that's mass trauma, especially within the context of mass shooting and the way that the media and mental health and racism all kind of plays into the outcome of these circumstances. And unfortunately, this is a very timely episode because we've just experienced another mass shooting in our country um, in Atlanta, Georgia, where a number of Asian-American individuals were killed um, uh, at the hands of a white man. So again, a difficult topic for us to tackle today, but something that we believe is so relevant. Right, Mary? Yeah. And I think it's important to, when we talk about these topics, that we aren't just wanting to focus on one aspect of it, but it's all intersectional. So, you know, so it's race, so it's gender, it's, there's a social piece, there's a historical piece, there's, you know, the, the mental health piece. And we can't, I think it's important to do this podcast or this, this subject because we can't really separate those things. And so when people talk about uh, mass shootings, we, like to just single it out one type of way in our mind because it's easier one in terms of the way that we think but we tend to and not and I don't mean this in a pejorative way but we tend to want we we tend to be lazy in our thinking when it comes to things like this because it's just easier and it alleviates a lot of anxiety so yeah I agree I think this is something that is important to kind of peel back the layers and unpack a little bit deeper Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, right? I think we, I I always say our brains are wired for the path of least resistance and we don't sit well in the discomfort of not having an answer out of fear and, and so many other emotions. And so we can be very quick, especially I want to say for, for, for people in the, in the white majority culture to kind of jump on 
what might be considered, and I'm using air quotes here, which you can't see, an explanation, right? This, oh, mm-hmm. well, you know, I think what was said about this shooter in Atlanta, oh, he was just having a bad day. Mm. Like, the fact that, that that could be used as an excuse is horrendous on so many levels. Right. And even equating it to mental health challenges, you know, as as you and I both know, the research on mental illness and those experiencing mental illness, very few individuals who are navigating serious mental illness are violent individuals. Mm-hmm. So even the description miscategorizes a group of people who are then unfortunately mistreated further in situations where they're having a mental health crisis. And as as you and I both know, oftentimes those individuals are in the minority community, individuals of color. Right. So there's a stigma, first of all, in terms of mental health in general. And then it's it's so interesting because this, the stigma that people who are dealing with mental health issues are quote unquote crazy. Now, mind you, it's not as... Um, taboo as it used to be, you know, years ago, and people are talking about mental health quite a bit now. But when we talk about mental health and shootings and race, it, it there's a huge separation and disconnect uh, between uh, races, right? Where when it's African-Americans, there's no allowance for the shooter or like, say, if you would say black on black crime or police brutality, if something happened, there's no um, allowance for any maybe historical peace, social peace, social unrest, social injustice, anything connected as to why we may respond in a way that is uh, maybe violent, perceived as violent, right? It's just usually we're the villains, you know, but then when you have a white male, for example, and I say white male because that's usually the at the forefront of the mass shootings, there's so much allowance for uh, excuses in terms of, especially in terms of mental health. So that's one piece of it. And, but the second piece is that the excuse is that it's mental health. And (laughs) many times it's not, you know, it's that stigma of believing that everyone who deals with mental health issues are some, are people that go off and do mass shootings, which is not true at all. Most individuals that struggle with mental health issues, it's usually, um, depression or anxiety because they say those are the common codes mental health and they're not mass shooters you know and so there's this stigma that that is already already on uh, individuals who struggle with mental health mental health but then on top of that if we are going to use this stigma it is tailored to make excuses for one side of the population right that that ironically is part of the 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 the, uh, the majority culture, right? In in the historically being at the having the more power, ha- having the most power. So it could be a lot of bit yeah. <laughs> frustrating in terms of trying to understand how we look at mental health. Yeah, how we look at mental health and race, and when mental health is used as a weapon versus an excuse. Absolutely. Ooh, when mental health is used as a weapon versus an excuse. Ooh, that that's. That's a headline right there. (laughs) And again, as you said so eloquently when we started out this podcast, it is a complicated and layered issue. Like us coming into this conversation, we can can move in so many directions that are so critical Mm -hmm. because 
again, they're, they're the media, the messaging, I think power, as, as you mentioned, thinking about, you know, the mass shootings that have occurred in our country over the last, even, gosh, sadly to say, what, five years six years, seven years, and how so frequently there's this kind of underlying message on the part of the shooter of like a power, like I, I, I need to inflict this harm as a result of this, me viewing myself as having a greater power and responsibility and how just ugly and offensive and toxic. And I mean, there's not even words to put to how just tragic that is when people are internalizing such an ugly message about their greater value or worth over another human being. Right. And here's the thing that is so good because, so then there's the, you know, that you talk about misogyny and gender. There's a lot of that comes to play, right? It's so funny because I was talking to um, my husband about there's this picture that it, it, it's it been circula- circulating forever since enslavement. And there's a picture of a hanging, right, that you see a black man being hung. And, and there's tons of pictures like that. And then you see all of the men at the bottom, the white men at the bottom looking up and like raising different, you know, because they used to, you know, maim them and hang them and all that and cut off their limbs and they would give it away to one to other people. In, in celebration. And so you see the the picture of the men at the bottom looking up after they've done this horrific thing. I say that because for so long, I would always look at the person being hung and the person's anguish. And one day I remember I was sitting there and I was looking at the men that were looking up. The reason why I say this is, is because as much as Racism is taught and misogyny is taught. Sexism is taught. Lack of empathy is also taught. So oftentimes we'll look at a picture and we'll look at the victim as it's normal, right? And we'll empathize with that. But we don't look at the people, the the history of the lack of empathy that is taught as well. If you're taught from the beginning that you're more superior than another group of people, then that's going to continue on, right? And we don't think about that. We just think that, yeah, we just got to teach them how to be empathic. When somebody is sad, we go and wipe their tears. But we've also been taught that people are for example, three-fifths human or people are not equal, right? And so that lack of empathy isn't even there. So that to me comes into play when we expect people to see themselves or see other people as equal to them, whether it's a man, whether it's white, whether it's black, whether it's Asian, but we are taught that that's not true, you know? So how that's, that's why it's so hard for me to unpack sometimes because this is so deeply ingrained, not just racism in itself, but the lack of empathy that was spurred out, you know, that was a foundation <laughs> of racism. Oh my gosh, I, I hear you. And I think what comes to mind as you're saying that is this internalized, right? So empathy, when I think of empathy, and especially in the context of what you're sharing, is like looking outside myself and 
actively placing myself in the in in another person's experience, considering a much larger context, mm-hmm. and actually then being moved to action. Like I, I, I'm a big fan of empathy, but um, somebody once taught me to take it a step further. Kind of using the example of the Good Samaritan. You know, all these people walked by on the other side of the road mm-hmm. and saw this this individual hurting, and I would imagine that that some of them, I mean, they were human, maybe thought, oh, that person must be in such pain, or oh what a terrible thing happened. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so that that could be considered empathy, but active empathy is what motivated the Samaritan to go over to pick the man up, to put him on his horse, to take him and to get treatment for him. Right. And so I think it's this ability to to look outside yourself and it's interesting because I was thinking I read this article over the weekend about the shooter and how he was receiving treatment at the time. Uh, and here's I'm just adding another layer. I apologize to at an at an at an evangelical treatment facility for his mental health issues, which he described or I think at one point said were sexual addiction and pornography addiction. And just thinking through the context of you know some of the messages that he described, and I don't remember them off the top of it, off the top of my head, but coming from this evangelical context. Is the church in some way, shape, or form, and I think the answer is yes, but maybe we can unpack it a bit more, unfortunately culpable in perpetuating this kind of me-focused, power-driven dynamic that is at the heart of that facial expression and that attitude and that posture that we see in pictures like the one that you described. And that's really oversimplifying it. I just want to reiterate, like there's so much deeper emotion and context to that. The church is, you know, part of society. <laughs> and I tell my students that all the time that, we're, yes, we're not supposed to be of this world. And we can say all of the different things that ideally um or what the Bible says, but we have to remember when we're talking about the Bible, the way that we perceive the Bible is still inf- informed by culture, right? We can we can use one word and then go across overseas and they will, you know, or one scripture and they look at it co- completely different, right? Because it is still culturally informed the way that we look at things. So whether I think people want to admit it or not, when we look at the church, there's still the same idea of sexism, racism, misogyny. There's a hierarchy, you know, all of the things that mimic the mimic our society. And yes, it's important that we're aware of that and what that looks like, but we can't escape that. That's like saying me as a person I'm not going to be affected by my immediate environment, by my family, by where I grew up, by where I live. So I think that's the thing that's missing, that we would like to believe that we're separate from the world. And I get in a theological standpoint, and when we talk about, you know, exegesis and eisegesis and, and, you know, letting the word speak to you and so forth. The inerrancy of scripture, yeah. Yeah, that's important to understand, and that that is the thing that we continuously need to work on. But we're still affected by our culture and we still function quite of the, the, the ways that we function in the church is functioned. You know, it's a, it mirrors our culture, you know, so you're going to see that hierarchy. You're going to see that sexism. You're going to see that misogyny. And because we're so indoctrinated in it, it still seems blinding in the church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think we could probably have six podcast episodes coming off of the topics we're covering. But, you know, I can't help but think 
there seems to have been this connection between the monstrous taking of another individual's life as a way of dealing with his problem, right? Like he kind of alluded to needing to 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 take the lives of these women because he was dealing with sexual addiction, like almost as if they held some level of responsibility there. And I think that's a message that tragically has come out of things like the purity culture movement and evangelical circles where women hold almost exclusive responsibility for any type of like sexual thought process or, you know, approach to navigating a relationship between a man and a woman where a man is quote-unquote tempted that it's somehow the woman's responsibility. And you know what, Deb? It is difficult. I'm raising a daughter, and that is such a difficult conversation to navigate. And it's a continual conversation with my daughter and I because I, like you, believe that there is this imbalance and um, error in thinking in terms of where the responsibility comes from, right? And because it is this, I came from the culture of don't do this and don't do that and don't wear this and don't, you know, which, you know, I'm not going to argue whether it's right, wrong or the other. However, but I find myself completely doing that because she is a girl, you know, and I don't have a son. So I don't know if I would be the same with my son, but I have to be honest with you. I don't know if I would, because I, I grew up in that culture as well. My mom raised three daughters and we, because it was three girls, she wanted to make sure that we behaved a certain way. And we were like this way and no, no, and there's, it's not indicative of anything. My mom did incorrectly. Actually, she, at the time she felt like she was doing what she was doing was for our benefit. And at the time I, I did until I had a daughter, that's very much different where she's growing up in a culture. It's like, wait, 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 hold on now. Wait a minute. <laughs> yes. But no, where, where are the other, what's the, what's the other side of the responsibility? So you're right where it's coming out where it's now the younger generation is seeing the issues with that. But what I do find is that now people are pushing back from the church because we're swinging on the other side of the pendulum saying, you know, we don't want to talk about this. We just got to make sure the women are wearing the purity rings and they have to, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like I have so much in my head about it that I'm kind of going on this rabbit trail. But well, I started us on this rabbit trail and I was, you know, I realized I think we do have a theme here. You know, we, we went into this this episode with kind of maybe one direction, but I do think there's a theme that we're we're coming around and it's. It's the messaging that we hear. And and there's so many messages that influenced right. this outcome, including, you know, I mean, I, I have a number of friends in the AAPI community and Asian American Pacific Islander, for those that aren't aware of what that, that acronym stands for, who have talked about even the hypersexualization of Asian women and, you know, the mislabeling in, in that way. And I think that comes into play here. But and, and maybe we can unpack that a little bit more, but kind of circling back to what you just shared about, you know, raising a daughter and and the the messaging um towards women about their sexuality and their and their physical presence and their you know their their style and all these kind of things and their behavior. It's interesting. And I'm gonna take us in another direction, but again, we got our theme. It's all about messages. Um I, you know. 
about, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, there was out of the UK, there was a woman who'd been murdered and they just found her body. And it was looks like allegedly um, at the hands of a, of a police officer. And it kind of sparked this resurgence of women, you know, talking about violence against women and kind of pushing for advocacy and talking about the messaging. And all these women on social media started talking about the things they have to do to, in order to be safe, that, you know, that men often stereotypically right. don't have to do. Like if uh, if I go walking at night in my neighborhood, I have my mace with me or I make sure I tell a friend or contact a family member so that they know what time I left and where my route is and when I'm going home and all these other things. And I was so fascinated. I don't, I don't know why I never heard this before or thought of this before, but again, messaging. It was so interesting. Somebody mentioned the way in which we we communicate the language that we use around violence against women, and specifically that statement, how so often when we talk about the research and we talk about what's happening in the world through media, that's the language used. Like we talk about, you know, the number of rapes against women or the number of violent incidences against women versus saying the number of violent incidences perpetuated by men or the number of rapes that men inflicted or violently acted upon women. It's always talked about, and again, it kind of sends this underlying message of the woman's responsibility. And I was blown away by that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then, because now we're going to circle a little bit back. Where do you think we are in church culture in terms of that type of messaging? Like, where do you, do you think we're like so far behind and society's catching up because you're reading it online. So people are starting to really think deeply and critically about messaging, at least on the blog. I don't know where it, people are Christians or non-Christians, but where do you see that in terms of the messaging that is happening in the church when it comes to violence or when it comes to in, in, in church and mental health as a whole 10 podcasts as well. Where does that stand? Where do you think that stands? I, I feel like we still have a lot of growth in that area. And I think it's so, I mean, maybe another theme is layered for our, our podcast today, but you know, I think about, remember that whole controversy when, when Mike Pence was vice president and there was that whole kind of question, conversation, controversy for some people around his practice that he would never um, travel or be in a car one-on-one -on -one with another woman. Yes. You know, again, I think this this kind of message that that sends of like I have no control over my urges, and this woman is going to be provocative or enticing or cause me to slip up. And then there's you know the other side where I'm like, but I also kind of see the perspective of you know with what's happening in the world today and how quickly people are to jump on situations out of context, I can also kind of see, and I'm not picking a side here, so I want to be real careful to to, to clarify that because I have not deep dived into this issue enough. But on the flip side, I do see, like, you just never know in this day and age. Somebody snaps a picture of two people having a conversation that is incredibly above ground, very much, you know, uh, above reproach, for lack of a better way of putting it, and it's twisted and turned into they're having an affair. And so you could argue on the one side, well, if I'm never alone with a person of the opposite sex, if I'm in a committed relationship, that removes that possibility altogether. And yet, on the other side, it does seem to 
somehow kind of shirk responsibility in a way or put responsibility on the other person. And I, and I don't think that solves the question either. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Again, I think we are, you know, again, having a daughter that's 15. So I'm seeing how things are moving, how things are being shaken up. Um, but I see it more so in or outside of the church. It may be Christians that aren't like, you know, it being discussed amongst teens or being discussed in schools. Um, but I still feel that there's this pull, this between, you know, just back this back and forth pull, this dichotomous pull where it's on one on the one hand, it's needing to be talked about in the church. Um, all of the messaging, all of the messaging, where we're talking about race, class, religion, you know, misogyny, you know, all of that. But then there is on the other side where, wait a minute, we're not talking about this, you know, and if we talk about this, it is the default, the quintessential default of, well, God doesn't see and we just need to come together and we just, so I think, you know, and I don't want to simplify it, but it is, it, it is becoming where we're starting to kind of talk about it, but it's becoming where people are, are still simplifying it. And it's not a simple issue. So we can't just look at it from this standpoint of, okay, well, this is how the world is talking about. Therefore, we're going to talk about it in a whole different way, which is great. But the whole different way is not talking about it. And I think it paints us in a really bad light as Christians because we seem more reactive. And then I think we're more susceptible to being culturally influenced when, you know, going back to Scripture, which absolutely has cultural context that's important to consider. But but you and I both believe in, you know, the truth of God's Word and that it's speaks to every area of our lives. So as Christians, why are we shying away from this conversation when the truth is in God's word? And, and you know what, Deb, I have to say this, and I and I, I tell my students this all the time, that I became a Christian at 22. So I didn't grow up as a Christian. Our family, you know, we I came from a family of believers. It was kind of like the, the you know, the minimal, uh, I believe in God. When I became a Christian, it was very transformative. It was very much... He literally pulled me out of the world and it came out of such a place of where I can't believe anything but God is real and God is so um, authentic and he's, he can take it and he can handle it. And there's no pretense with my relationship with him because it came out of such of an authentic place. I wasn't taught from a young age and not to say it's great if you're, you're raising your kids like we are to, you know, from a young age to be Christians and to be Christ-like and understand what it means to be in a relationship with him. But I came out of a place where it, it had to be where God had to show up so authentic and so raw for me. The reason why I'm saying that is that when I relate to God because of the way that I that He He um, pulled me out of the world, I talk to Him about everything, right? So it's so strange to me how we shy away from from so many different things in the church because. I literally talk to God about everything, even when I think I'm not supposed to believe it, fulfill it. He's going to be mad. He's going to be this. He's going to all the things that we project onto God, right? 
and I'm not saying I do this perfectly and everyone needs to do this, but I will say that it has helped me be have such a raw relationship with God that I feel I can talk to him about every single feeling, even if it's contrary to what I should feel like I should be feeling as a Christian, contrary to who he is, he can take it. And so sometimes I believe that when we feel that we cannot talk about some things or some things are just too, whether they're taboo or whether there's something that we can't, you know, as Christians, we shouldn't do this where I'm like, if we take it to him, he can handle it. He, he, you know what I mean? He can handle it. And he is the one, he's not up there eating sushi. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he knows what's going down. Oh, but that'd be so cool if he right. was. <laughs> I know it would. It would. A little sashimi. Right, some California anyway. rolls. <laughs> you know, but he can take it. And the way that we place, I feel that sometimes we as the church can place so many limitations on him of what we are to address. And I just long that we say, listen, let's just be real and raw about this in a way where we're going to say, okay, God, we don't know what we're doing. You know, I, I, there are times where I'm like, I'm trying to intellectualize things and I'm trying to use this. And, and sometimes I'm just like, God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Please teach me about this because I'm a hot mess right now. And I think the church needs to say, you know what, God, we're a hot mess. Yes, yes. Yes and amen. And I think start with this question of, I mean, at least I don't know, this is my bias here, but if all human beings, if we truly believe, and if you don't believe this, then I would question your salvation, but if all human beings are made in the image of God, like hold inherent worth and dignity, where are we as the church treating anybody or sending any messages or behaving in any way that would suggest otherwise. Like, let's do a deep internal reflection in our own body. Let's take that plank, that that huge, catastrophic plank out of our own eye and start to do better because these messages, unfortunately, are very much whether they're received and then manipulated, you know, I, I I do not for a second believe that healthy Bible preaching churches are communicating to anybody that they're superior directly. Well, that's the problem. Wait, let's pause there. Directly. When we are not looking within and we're not looking to Christ, here's the problem is that we believe that we know something. And sometimes when we're not really pausing and say, Lord, okay, like you said, take this plank out of my eye. Then the, I didn't say I, that person was this, and I didn't say that person was that, but the insinuation and the things that you actually believe is still going to show up in your messaging. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But we are very, yeah. we're, pro, we're pros at political, the way that we say things. And, and I know there's a huge argument for that, right? But we are pros in terms of what we don't say, but it still relays a message. Whether people think individuals are sensitive about it or not, we still need to say, okay, I didn't mean it that way, but you know what? Let me pause because I actually might believe that and didn't even realize I believe that as opposed to saying, oh, they're just sensitive or, oh, they just, they took it wrong. That might be true in some cases. However, the messaging needs to be addressed, especially if we haven't done our own work in making sure that we are not 
saying and, and, and relaying things that really could be hurtful and destructive to another person. It's not okay. As Christians, let's put everything aside from changing the culture and da, 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 but we are responsible for one another. So I hope that when I, if I say something to you, Deb and you and I, and we've done that where, you know, there's times like, okay, are we beefing? We got to talk about it. Was it me? Was it you? Was it both of us? You know, and understanding that it could have been me the way that I said it, but I didn't mean it, but I said it that way. It could have been you because you took it this way. It could have been both, you know, and I understand that comes with relationship. However, we have to get to a point where we have to sit in that discomfort so that we are not destructive to our brothers and sisters. The reality is these messages, which are not exclusively coming from the church by any means, but they're taking root, right? Like, I mean, we see in the research, I was just reading today um, that they summarized a whole host of research out of the police response to the Black Lives Matters protests that happened throughout the country, particularly over the summer. And it was it was tragic. I mean, just just, you know, the way police responded with violence, with, you know, with just um, a misunderstanding, with a lack of empathy, as you as you share and connection to the community, which, again, is an intern. I mean, we're oversimplifying here, but an internalized message of superiority. Yes. And you think about, you know, the 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 research that's showing how much I mean, like a hundred and fifty percent increase in Asian hate crimes and hate speech since the start of the pandemic. And now look at what we're navigating. And so it we have to we have to be cognizant and take ownership of our communication which then connects back to the messages that we have been exposed to and internalized about our own identity. Mm-hmm. And and then we need to take ownership about continuing the process of change, responsibility and and committing to a posture of humility. That is what it is, committing to a posture of humility. And even in the moments, sometimes I find myself being prideful and all of that, right? Everything that is the antonym to humility, right? So prideful. I'm never prideful. And never, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> Ironic statement. But I Sometimes God has to sometimes say, you know what, Mary, stop this. Okay. Cause this is how God talks to me. Right. He's, I told you we're, we're real authentic. And he, he's, he, he gets hood on me. Cause you know, that's the way that I can hear it. <laughs> right? That'll get your attention. Right. He's like, look, stop. Okay. You're doing way too much. <laughs> okay. When, you know, there are times where I'm extremely passionate and I'm extremely passionate, especially around race, around culture, around justice. And even in those moments, not, and I don't always listen. <laughs> I don't always listen because that's my pride, right? But even in those moments that we know what God believes about justice, we're still in that, in our, in our, um, in our flesh, in our, um, you know, sinful nature where I can still, I can still know that God is a God of justice, but I still have to be open 
And like you said, we still have to take a posture of humility of how he wants us to even go about it or even to, the way he wants us to think about it first and then what he wants us to do about it and how he wants us to do it. Right. And I'm not saying that you should do it this way. Or you shouldn't do it this way, because some days I'm Martin Luther King and some days I'm Malcolm X, to be honest with you, <laughs> you know, and some days, you know, I'm in my prayer closet and I'm just chilling, you know, so it just depends. But your point is to me where it has to do with humility and understanding what God wants want you to do with it. You can hold those two things where you absolutely know something is wrong, such as the mass shootings and, and language and messaging. And you also can hold that humility of what God wants you to do with it. You don't have to hold one or the other where you're just being, and, and people believe oftentimes when you're doing something about it, that you're against what God wants you to do. If it doesn't look like the way that you want it to look from society's perspective, do you know what I mean? The, the important piece is us as Christians. And the reason why, like you said earlier, we're not just saying only this is just, is just uh, exclusive of Christians, but we're Christians and we're talking about this, that we have got to check ourselves and check in on ourselves and saying, okay, if I had such a visceral reaction to something that was so upsetting, there's nothing wrong with that. When we talk from a mental health standpoint, our feelings, our passions, and the things that we are passionate about is a message for us. It means we're passionate about something. If it's anger, that means that 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 thing means something to us, right? But just to be that and then respond out of that, and God is nowhere in the equation, especially God working with you and how you are supposed to handle it. That's problematic to me. And I mean that on, you know, from all across the spectrum, you know, and sometimes we have to check to see, okay, is it, is it, is it him that I'm not doing anything? Okay. Let's start there. Yeah. Is it, is it him that I just feel uncomfortable? So I'm just going to say the whole opposite and I'm just going to throw a scripture out. The word does not come back void. I understand that you guys, but again, like we do with other things, we are not, like I said with mental health, what we're not going to do is use the Bible as a weapon to make ourselves feel comfortable. Right. Absolutely. And I'm so grateful for your passion. Like, thank, thank God for your passion because it has motivated me to continue those, you know, practices of contemplation, education, reflection, growth, transformation. It has impacted so many others, your students, our listeners. And so I, I just want to validate and affirm that. And, and to just kind of close us out here, we're here for mental health. Right, that's the that's the crux of our podcast, and what you just shared is so fundamentally critical to not only individual mental health but community mental health. Yes, and it's biblical. I mean, I think about it, I was just reading this morning in Luke, and it was talking about Jesus's ministry and how the crowds were coming to him and pushing in on him, and Jesus always took time to steal away and pray. God challenges us to take every thought we have captive, and for the sake of our mental health, for the sake of our community mental health and well-being, it is imperative that we take these times to pause, to observe, especially in the midst of a mass trauma such as this with significant racial implications, especially for those of us in the white majority community, to be observant to listen, to seek to understand and to gain context and then to turn inward and to ask God to root out anything within us that doesn't represent His truth with regards to Scripture but also His creation of humanity. 
Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Becoming Well. Um, Please visit us at our website, www.becomingwellpodcast.org. Give us a like, give us a review. Uh, We love all of your feedback. And um, you can find us on any of the major podcast platforms. And we hope to catch you here again soon. 